Many of you will know Steve Brady, who used to be minister at Lansdowne. And he tells that when he was a young lad in Liverpool, he would go to the barber's and he would sit in the barber's chair to have his uh, hair cut. And he would be sitting there and the um, barber would keep slapping him under the chin and saying, look up, look up, <laughs> look up. And um, that's what I want my sermon to do today. I want you to be looking up, all right, looking up. You see, when I go to the barbers, the barber gets my head and pushes it down <laughs> and cuts at the back. And you know, there are lots of things in life that cause us to look down, and we need something to keep us looking up. So that's what I hope uh, the sermon's going to do uh, this morning. We struggle, though. We struggle to keep looking up. And one of the reasons we struggle is because of materialism. Life for us in the wealthy West can be so comfortable that we don't look forward to heaven because it means letting go of all these material comforts we've got. It means leaving our nice home and our, our nice family and our nice holidays. As C.S. Lewis wrote in the 1940s or about then, we're like the boy sitting in the gutter making mud pies who doesn't want a week's holiday by the seaside because he has no idea how much better that is than making the mud pies. And we can find that our materialism keeps us focused down here rather than looking up. And we need to um, take notice of what Jesus said, not to lay up treasures on earth, but to lay up treasures on heaven. Because where our heart is, where our treasure is, our heart will be also. Therefore, we need to deny ourselves, take up the cross, and follow Jesus Christ. We need to struggle against materialism. This is why taking an offering is part of our worship, because it's actually causing us to say no to materialism. We're not going to hold on to everything we've got. We'll sacrifice. Another reason we tend to look down rather than up is because of ridicule. People say we are ridiculous for living uh, for heaven. Live for today. Seize the day. Carpe diem, they shouted us. You're silly to believe in pie in the sky. Why miss out on life now because of some vague hope for uh, the future? And they laugh us to scorn. And we feel so embarrassed. And so we join with them in just ignoring heaven. And we store up treasures on earth, too. But it's not some vague hope of heaven. It's a living hope. It's a glorious hope. It is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a sure and certain hope. And the third thing that causes us to look down is bad teaching. The Christian church used to be so excited about the future, the return of Jesus Christ, heaven and glory. And people were searching the scriptures for prophecies to be fulfilled, to tell them when this was going to happen. And people uh, got uh, the notion that the forming of the state of Israel in 1948 meant that within one generation, which they said was 40 years, the Lord would return. And so we were told quite categorically, 
that the return of Jesus Christ would be before May 1988. Remember April coming, May coming, June coming, July coming, 49, uh, 89 coming, 1990 coming. And because of this bad teaching, people suddenly stopped living in hope. They were put off. And suddenly the charismatic movement exploded with healing now, and the word of faith movement exploded with riches now, health, wealth, and prosperity, and we suddenly wanted heaven now, glory now. And the future just became some curiosity which was nice when a person was dead. Actually, as someone said, we were not concerned about pie in the sky when we die because we have steak on the plate while we wait. But the apostle Peter didn't have steak on the plate while he waited. He had the cross on his shoulders and he endured hardship and suffering and persecution while he waited, as his letter explains. And bit by bit, this hardship, suffering, and persecution is coming our way. And we need to be prepared for it. So we need to be people of hope. Our citizenship is in heaven, not on earth. Our treasure is in glory, not in the HSBC. Our fulfillment is in the future, not today. And we need to be living in hope. And this is what Peter teaches us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 21. Look at the bookends, the beginning and end of these two paragraphs. Verse 13, therefore prepare your minds for action, be self-controlled, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. And verse 21, the end of our passage through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Hope, hope. All this two paragraphs center around hope. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through to chapter 2, verse 11, the apostle Peter is telling us to be who we are. He's told us in chapter 1, verses 1 to 12, our privilege of being Christians. And so he begins verse 13 with the word, therefore. Therefore, verses 13 to 21, be people of hope. And verses 22 to chapter 2, verse 3, be people of the word of God, the gospel, the scriptures. And then thirdly, chapter 2, verses 4 to 12, be people of the temple, the living stones in the church of Jesus Christ. So that's where we're going to be going over the next couple of studies. But um, these are the things that must characterize our lives. Since we're saved, therefore, and first of all, it's hope. We must live in living hope. All right? So I hope <laughs> to preach a sermon on hope that fills you with hope. 
We love the past, though, don't we? You know, as Christians, we just love the past. We love the songs of the past. We love the traditions of the past. We love the ethos of the past. I knew a church, and the new minister went there, and he said he was going to put a notice board out. Come to church and see how it used to be done 100 years ago. <laughs> now, it's good that we don't reject our traditions. We thank God for the past. We don't forget it. We don't reject it. There are some people who think we've got to be people of the present. What we've got to do is be relevant. And of course, we don't want to be irrelevant. Mind you, the gospel is never irrelevant. The gospel is the most relevant message. But they say we've got to make sure everything is relevant. We've got to be contemporary. And there's a sense in which there's a lot of wisdom in that. But you know, supremely, we have to be people of the future. We are resurrection people. We're people who are going home to heaven. And we're not to be characterized by the past. And we're not to be characterized by the world around us. We're to be characterized by heaven. That's what must characterize us. We have to be people of hope. Viktor Frankl, when he was in Auschwitz, tells of a soldier there who, who read that work sets you free. And he really believed that. And so he became the model marine, the model soldier, working so hard. And then he wasn't set free, and he suddenly realized he'd been deceived. He had no hope. And so he would just lie in his bunk, cuddled up in the fetal position, sucking his thumb. And they would come and kick him and beat him. But they couldn't move him. He just lay there until he died. As soon as he lost his hope, he lost the purpose for living. Hope impacts how we live today. I don't know if you've ever seen the film A Few Good Men. The language is pretty bad. But it's all about um, these two lawyers who are acted by Tom Cruise and Demi Moore. And, and there is a private, William Santiago, who has died. And the um, Marines on the Air Force Base... Um, say that Private William Santiago was going home the next day. But the lawyers realized that that was a lie. He wasn't going home the next day. They knew he wasn't going home the next day because he hadn't packed anything today. If he was going home tomorrow, it would affect how he behaved today. He would have packed his clothes, his shoes. He would rung up his parents or his friends to let them know he was coming home. If you have a hope for the future, it affects how you behave today. And so they knew he hadn't been given the hope of going home because it would have affected how he would have behaved today. You see, if we are going home to heaven soon, does it really matter if we haven't climbed Kilimanjaro? Does it really matter if we haven't seen the Norwegian fjords or the Northern Lights, or the Grand Canyon. They are lovely, they are wonderful, but we're going to the new creation, where we will have these things in glorious splendor. Okay, we may think it would be nice to see them, but it doesn't really matter if we don't, because we have a glorious hope of the new creation. If I'm going home to heaven then what I want to do is not so much see the northern lights as to make friends for eternity. If I'm going to be there forever and ever and ever, I want to make sure I lay up for myself treasures in heaven. That's what I want to be doing now. For soon, it will be too late to do that. 
So my hope affects how I behave today. Now, if you get a book on systematic theology, and it's a good idea to do that, it's even better to read it if you get it, but you will find that the last section, the final section, is on the last thing. It ends with the last things, which is logical systematically. But from practical theology, the last things should be the first thing we know after the gospel. Because our hope affects how we live today. Imagine you're going on holiday to Australia next week. Well, you will be making sure that you have nice clothes to wear in a hot climate, won't you? So you'll make sure you, you know, go into the um, cupboards and you look at your T-shirts and things and your sandals so that you are ready to go. And you'll make sure you get your money changed into um, Australian dollars and you'll make sure that your passport is up to date. You will behave today in a certain way that other people won't behave because you are going to Australia next week. Now, imagine your boyfriend or girlfriend is already in Australia waiting for you, and you'll be reading the emails, and you'll be checking your texts and everything, and then sometimes people will see you, and you'll have that far away gaze, <laughs> because your heart's in Australia. You're, you're, you're there in your mind and in your heart, even before you're there in your body. And that's how we should be sometimes about heaven. That's our home. That's where our Savior is. That's where our treasure is. And we've got to regain our hope for heaven. And so we see two things here. In verse 13, we see we've got to cultivate a mind fueled by hope. This is the first thing. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. You see the athletes... They come to the start of the 100 meters. He kneels down. He puts his feet in the starting blocks. Secondly, he puts his fingers almost touching the starting line. And thirdly, he listens for the starter's pistol. One, two, three. But really, he's just done one thing. He's just got ready to run. Mum says, turn the telly off. Wash your hands. Sit up at the table. Three things, yes, but really it's only saying one thing. Get ready for dinner. Peter says, prepare your minds for actions. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you. Three things, but really it's just one thing. Get ready for glory. Do you get so frustrated because you are so sinful? And you want to be sinlessly perfect. But temptation catches you unprepared. You fall into sin and you grieve the Holy Spirit. And then you repent of your sin. And you rejoice that the gospel is good news for sinners. And you're so glad that you're saved, not because of what you do, but because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so you pray to God for forgiveness. And you rejoice that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you, forgives you, washes you clean. And you rejoice that the Holy Spirit strengthens you against sin. And, here's the thing, 
and you look forward to that day when you won't have a sinful nature and when you won't have just the first installment, the down payment of the Holy Spirit, when you won't keep on sinning. You look forward to that wonderful experience when in the twinkling of an eye you will be transformed and the uh, mortal shall put on immortality, the corruptible shall put on incorruptible and we shall be like Christ. You look forward to that day when the grace of God will be given you, when Jesus Christ is revealed and you will be without sin. You look forward to that day when you will be like Christ, that day when Jesus returns. And so here and now, you prepare your minds for actions. You say, right, I'm going to live right. You're self-controlled. You say, I I'm, I'm not going to sin. You look forward to the day also when this will become a reality, a permanent reality. Oh, that will be glory for me. Glory for me. But now, now we get our mindset right. Now we are going to start thinking right so that we will start living as if we are in glory. My nephew was going to join the Marines. He did join the Marines on about his 18th birthday. And so when he was 17, he got the uniform. He would go out running. He would polish his boots. He would do his exercises because he was going to join the Marines. Well, we're going to glory. There's that day coming when we shall be changed perfectly. So we get our minds fueled by that hope. Secondly, we cultivate a lifestyle. It's not just a matter of thinking, but that thinking filters down into living. So we have a lifestyle fueled by hope. And this is verses 14 to 21. First of all, negatively, verses 14 to 16. Because we are children of God, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Don't be like you were before God called you. My son-in-law is a mad Arsenal fan. And a few weeks ago, Arsenal were playing Bournemouth. And so he had a friend who had a ticket for him, so he went to the Arsenal-Bournemouth match. Unfortunately, he had to be with all the Bournemouth fans. So he didn't wear his Arsenal shirt. And when Arsenal scored and took the lead, he didn't jump for joy and shout. And then in the space of 280 seconds, when Bournemouth equalized, and then Bournemouth took the lead, he stood up and he cheered. <laughs> you see, because he was with the Bournemouth fans, he pretended... He was a Bournemouth fan. He pretended he wasn't an Arsenal fan. And because we live in a world saturated by people who live without hope, we can behave just as they do. But we have been called by God to be with God. And the God who is holy, 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 who calls us to be holy. And, and yet, sometimes we still seem to support the wrong team. We're meant to have rejected greed. We, we're meant to be laying up treasures in heaven. We aren't to be selfish. 
We're meant to have rejected pride. We're worshippers of God, not of ourselves. So why do we behave as if we have a right to do whatever we want to do? Why do we behave as if we have a right to demand that people do what we want them to do? That's how you behave when you are ignorant of the grace of God, when you have no hope. Reject that. Don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance of the gospel. And positively, verses 17 to 21, because God is your Father, live in the fear of God. Verse 17, since you call on a Father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. And Peter gives us two reasons. If you look at verses 18 and 19, it's because of the cross of Christ. And if you look at verses 20 and 21, it's because of the resurrection of Christ. Because of those things. Or we can look at it a different way. 18 and 19, because Jesus Christ has saved us from our sin. Verses 20 and 21, because Jesus Christ has saved us from death. Or we can look at it another way. Verses 18 and 19, because of the work of Christ on one day, verses 18 and 19, and because of the will of God from all eternity, verses 20, 21. We can look at these verses in lots of uh, different ways, but I want to consider it like this. Verses 18 and 19, the depth to which Christ descended. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. God redeemed you. God purchased you, paid for you, liberated you. Not with money, not with all the money in the world, but with the precious blood of Christ most precious thing in the universe, to save you from your empty, lost life. Christ became the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Christ lived a perfect life and he shed his precious blood so that you could have your filthy sins forgiven and your pig pen lifestyle could be washed clean and you could become citizens of heaven. Christ came down, right down, to rescue you. And secondly the height to which Christ ascended. God raised him from the dead and glorified him. Look, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but were revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. All the angels and archangels worship him. He who was nailed to the cross for my sin is now crowned with glory and honor. And can I treat him with contempt? Can I ignore him? Can I be flippant about him? Think of him just as another bloke? No. I have to get down on my knees before him and treat him with the utmost respect. I live in reverent fear of God, as verse 17 tells us. Not cowering fear, not the fear of a slave before a vicious tyrant with a whip in his hand, but a reverent fear. Let's see if I can illustrate this for you. Imagine you join the army and you're a private in the army. 
and you have a sergeant major. And your sergeant major shouts, jump, and you jump. And he says, 50 press-ups. You do 50 press-ups. He says, put your uh, rucksack on and run uh, 15 miles. And you put your rucksack on and you run 15 miles. He says, clean your boots and you clean your boots. He shouts and you obey. And then you smile because the brigadier comes. And the brigadier shouts and your sergeant major obeys. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, he's as scared of the brigadier as you are of the sergeant major. And then the next day, the field marshal comes. Oh, and the brigadier stands there to attention. And everyone is awe of the field marshal. Well, that evening, you meet a very nice young lady. And you fall madly in love with her. And she says, come and meet the parents. And so she takes you home. And you go in. And you find that her dad is the field marshal. <laughs> Suddenly, you are trembling. And yet, he shakes you by the hand. He pats you on the back. He sits you at the table. He serves you. And you get engaged, and he loves you. You still have this awesome respect for him. But there's also this love and relationship. Well, the field marshal multiplied a billion times, doesn't even take us near to God. And yet he came not just to serve us at the table, but to die for our sin. And we hold him in the utmost respect and the utmost love. And we will obey him and we will love him. We stand in reverent awe of God. And because of this, our faith looking back and our hope looking forward are in God. Well, I have six points of application which I will miss. I will just tell you this. Richard Baxter, one of the great Puritans, first book he ever wrote, The Saints Everlasting Rest, last book he ever um, wrote was um, on Philippians 1.21, For Me to Live is Christ, to Die is Gain. And in between that, he wrote about 150 other books. But... Every day, he would spend half an hour just meditating on heaven. It made him able to stand up to Judge Jeffries. When he was in his 80s, Judge Jeffries said he was going to tie him to the back the wheel of the cart and whip him through the town. But he stood firm. He had such an impact in um, England and he had an impact today because his mind was in heaven and his lifestyle was cultivated by that hope. And I think it's a bit too much for us to spend 30 minutes a day meditating on heaven. Maybe we'll get there one day. But I just want to encourage you for a minute and a half, two minutes, when you clean your teeth, make a point, clean your teeth, and think about heaven. Set your mind on heaven. Going home to heaven. Every time you clean your teeth, remember that soon these teeth will be gone. <laughs> but you're going home to heaven. Let's remind ourselves. My points are value the eternal above the temporary. Value the perfect above the imperfect. Value the visible above the invisible. Value the reality above the shadows. Value the heavenly above the earthly. 
and value the presence of God above all things. One day, we will be with Christ on high.